Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Turbulence caused by the federal government's new excise tax on nicotine vaping products continues to take a heavy toll on the Canadian vaping industry. RegWatch reported last week that the October 1st deadline for the new tax created enormous challenges for the industry as it worked to implement a hastily derived framework while navigating poor planning and government delays. Joining us today to discuss the details of the new excise tax and what the impact might be on the industry and for Canadian consumers is Ian Irvine, Professor of Economics at the Department of Economics at Concordia University in Montreal. Ian, thanks for joining us again on RegWatch. Well, good to be with you again, Brent. So Ian, the last time we had you on the show was this past February. We only had a sketch of the new tax based on the federal government's proposal in 2021. Please walk our viewers through the basics of the tax as passed into law and implemented. And were there any changes from when we last spoke? Well, when the initial proposals came out, the Department of Finance was somewhat uncertain as to how exactly the uh, tax would be implemented. This is an excise tax, and so it's a tax that is levied on the volume of product subject tax. So here it's going to be a tax that is levied per milliliter of, of e-juice or e-liquid. So specifically what's going to happen, or what has happened, I should say, is that if you uh, buy e-liquid in very small amounts, for example, in a closed pod, the excise tax on an amount up to two milliliters will be $1. If you uh, buy amounts beyond that, up to 10 milliliters, the tax rises by $1 for every two milliliters. So a, um, a 10 milliliter purchase would be subject to a $5 excise tax. Beyond that, the tax is going to go in 10 milliliter increments. So if you were to purchase 20 milliliters, you would pay $6 in excise tax. If you were to buy 30 milliliters, you would pay seven. So 30 milliliters is a, is a standard size for um, e-liquid sales. So $7 will be a standard excise levy on that size of container. Um, if you go to a 60 milliliter container, the tax will go up by another $3 up to $10. And if you go up to a, a very large size, the largest one that's available on the market, 120 milliliters, the tax will go up by a further $6. So up to $16. Dollars on that size of the container. What's been implemented uh, shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. We knew that there was going to be an excise tax imposed, and it was really just a question of how high it would be and exactly what form it would it would take. So, what we got confirmed in the uh, spring budget this year was um, what what the levy would be: a dollar per two milliliters. And then beyond 10 milliliters, a dollar per 10 milliliters. So that that was the not that was the news or the confirmation, I should say, in the spring budget of this year. Ian, are there any inequities in the tax between the different products? You've got the closed pod systems, you've got the open e-liquid systems. Is it fairly applied? Most e-liquid is consumed as a result of purchases in a vape shop, and then people drip that liquid into their own device at home. So that's the, that's the most common way of vaping e-liquid. Individuals can also buy uh, pre-filled pods at uh, a vape shop. They can buy disposables at a vape shop, which contain a certain amount of, of e-liquid. 
or they can go to a gas and convenience store and buy a Juul or a Views type device. Uh, if you go to a vape shop, you're more likely to buy a 30 milliliter container or a 60 milliliter container. Whereas if you go to a gas and convenience store, the corner store or a dépanneur, as we call them in Quebec, you're more likely to buy um, a pair of pre-filled pods for either a fuse or a dual device. And those, those pods will contain um, somewhere between 0.7 and 2 milliliters of e-juice. So... We, we buy the stuff in very different forms, and that's because people have different tastes, and some people like the convenience of a corner store, and some people are just happy to drip their, uh, their bottle of e-juice into their own device, and then they replace the coils and pods for their own device periodically. So it's the diversity and the way in which we consume the product that makes it challenging to structure the tax that, it, that everybody would call equitable or uniform or whatever word you want to choose. It would appear to me that this tax as implemented will cause quite a bit of disruption for those different kinds of tastes that you would have and where you might like to go to make your purchases. That could all unwind for some people, couldn't it? Yeah, well, it's it's going to, again, it's going to be difficult to predict exactly how people are going to react just between the different forms in which we can consume e-juice. Um, a bottle of uh, e-juice uh, that has um, 30 milliliters in it is now going to carry a $7 federal excise tax on it. And then if we have a sales tax on top of that, then uh, 15% on, on top of the, the price will bring um, a manufacturer's just a retail price of $20 up to about $31. So the federal excise tax and the sales tax together will um, generate about $11 in revenue relative to a $20 uh, uh, retail price. So that's a tax rate over the retail price of, of more than 50%. So it's relatively high there. And that was gonna be my next question is whether or not you feel that this tax is a modest tax. A modest tax, oh gee. I, I, in this particular instance where you get um, an $11 tax over a $20 um, base price, we, we, can, we can hardly call that a, a modest tax. I, I think it's a, a, a relatively high tax uh, on a product which is not risk-free, but on a product which is low risk. We, we really do want to try and keep in mind that there are high risk and low risk nicotine products. And in dealing with vaping, we are dealing with the lower risk product. And so we should be guided by the fact that there are lower risks here in choosing the tax revenue, or choosing the tax rate or the excise levy rate that we impose on it. So this is, this is not a low tax rate, no. This is a harm reduction product when excise taxes are generally applied to products that are considered to be sinful, you know, the sin tax. So is, it, is this the right taxing tool to apply to this product category? Oh, well, uh, you, you've opened a very big que question there, Brent. Um, if you read uh, a recent report by the Royal College of Physicians in England, they, rep they recommended about a 5% tax on vaping products in order to induce smokers to move into it and to signal to consumers that this is a lower risk, much lower risk product than, than cigarettes. So if we were to take that recommendation, and it does come from a very august body, the Royal College of Physicians, 
if we take that recommendation and put it in the context of our existing sales taxes, you know, we, we, we might go from, you know, the combined federal and provincial rate of, say, 13, 14, 15%, add another 5% to that, and you'd get a 20% rate. So you would have a 20% tax on vaping products then rather than something much higher, you know, 40 or 50%. So that's just to take one example of, of what is out there as a recommendation by a very responsible medical body. Let me ask you this, just turning back here to Canada and the implementation. Uh, as I mentioned, there's been quite a few challenges going on with the industry in terms of the implementation of this tax. There was only just a, a hair over 90 days from the moment that uh, the budget received royal assent and from when this excise tax was to be implemented or has been implemented. So there's been problems with tax license delays, excise tax stamp scarcity, lack of sufferance warehousing, and mixed inventories to market where some of the inventory is going to be highly taxed and some of it not highly taxed. And that could be for several months now, certainly going into the Christmas holiday period. Are these types of challenges normal for an excise tax rollout? Oh, really, I, I'm not sufficiently expert on that. You sound more informed on it than I am, Brent. And I'm, I'm sure people in one of the, the two vaping associations uh, that would be better than I am at, at informing you on that. But I, I will say something about the economics of it. Once, once we get through all of these setup difficulties, the fact that we have an excise tax um, in place will add to the cost of production for producers. They will have to buy a stamp for each product that they sell. They will have to buy some machinery to put the stamps on. They will have to have uh, essentially a bonded warehouse. They will have new accounting standards to meet. They will have the costs of um, uh, uh, keeping track of the amount of revenue that they to Ottawa, and then they will have to keep six years worth of records. So there will be substantial costs associated with the implementation of, of this excise tax. And so um, if, if I were to guess, I would imagine that the ultimate price of um, products may go up by more than the amount of the levy per se. So if we take that um, 30 milliliter bottle that has a manufacturer's suggested retail price of uh, $20, that price may go up by more than the $7, which uh, would be suggested just by the rate itself because of the additional costs imposed on, on manufacturers. This is a competitive industry and you know they're not monopolists or oligopolists, uh, they're competitors and uh, margins are tight and so um, it'll be very difficult for this industry to absorb additional costs. And it's more likely that there will be uh, some pass on of those costs to the consumer at the end of the day. Now, let's uh, jump into the numbers. You wrote a detailed report on behalf of the industry, providing an estimate of initial revenues from the tax to government and a breakdown of the consequences it might entail. So let's first start with the revenue. How much will this new tax generate in revenue in its first year for the government? Well, you're absolutely right in saying that uh, I was asked to do this report, and uh, I should disclose that I was um, I was I have been under contract to the Canadian Vaping Association. They asked me if I would be able to do 
uh, an estimate of how much revenue would be generated. Um, they asked me because I have a good deal of experience in doing these kinds of models. I've done these models for the cigarette industry and also for the cannabis industry. So it's, um, it's not a big step then to develop this modeling for, for the vaping industry. So they, they asked me to do that. And um, the Department of Finance put out an estimate of $145 million in revenue when they presented their budget in the spring of, of this year. And the Vaping Association wanted to know uh, from me if I thought that that would be a reasonable number. So what I tried to do was to get information on the quantity of different products sold in the industry as a whole. And then I tried to determine uh, how much liquid was in each of those products. And then I applied the excise uh, duty schedule to those volumes. So I made an estimate of um, how many pods um, are sold in uh, gas and convenience stores each year, how many disposables are sold, how many bottles of different, um, different sizes are sold, uh, how many pre-filled pods are sold in vape shops. And I did get information from the Canadian Vaping Association on these amounts and they were able to supply those estimates as a result of having done a survey of, of their members. So I, I fed that all into uh, what we call an economic model of the, uh, the tax sector. And I came up with um, some numbers at the end of the day. And the, the, number, the numbers that I have come up with are uh, a, lot, a lot greater than the $145 million estimate that the Department of Finance um, made public in, in its spring uh, budget. One of the, the key elements in building a model like this is to try to figure out by how much consumers will cut back when the price goes up. Uh, we, all, we all know about supply and demand. If the good is more expensive, people buy less of it. And uh, what I tried to do in the model was to experiment under different assumptions about the degree to which people would cut back their expenditures and to see how that would impact the tax revenue that would be generated. But no matter what I did in the model, it always came out to be the case that uh, much more revenue, uh, uh, approximately twice the amount of revenue, um, twice the $145 million revenue was the number I, I kept coming up with, with, with some variations on it, depending upon how I assumed uh, consumer responses would vary in response to higher prices. If the objective of the Department of Finance was to generate a revenue of 145 million, and my, my estimates indicate that they'll be getting 250 or 300 million out of the actual tax that has been imposed, then obviously they could have uh, imposed a lower tax uh, rate and they would have been able to get their $145 million from that. They didn't need to impose this high tax. I mean, that's, that's really undershooting the mark, isn't it? I think so, yeah. And uh, I, I would emphasize that there's, um, there are always uncertainties when you, when you build these models. And so what you have to try to do is to say, well, uh, let, let's consider a reasonable range of possibilities here in consumer responses. Are, are consumers going to cut back a lot? Or are they going to cut back a little in, in response to the higher prices? 
Um, and, and that was what I tried to do in, in the modeling exercise. But no matter whether I um, assumed that they would cut back by a very small amount or by a substantial amount, the, uh, the tax revenue figures that were coming in at the end of the day were much, much higher under any, any scenario almost than uh, the number that was published by finance. Let's just set that part uh, to the side for a moment because there's the other number that's of great concern too as well. So you've got a huge amount of revenue being generated from the tax, and then you've also got a commiserate uh, fall in revenue for the vendors. And if, correct me if I'm wrong, but in one of your base estimations that um, it would be $365 million revenue loss for vendors this year. And putting in and modeling these different scenarios, I've tried to be guided by what's out there in the, in the uh, research literature. And um, sure enough, accompanying the fact that uh, more tax revenue would be generated than was envisaged in, in the budget. Um, if it's a case that uh, consumers are going to respond by cutting back their purchases, then sure enough, there will be a, a reduction in revenue accruing to the vendors, the industry, the producers, uh, and so forth. There'll be uh, a, a pretty high tax revenue, and there will be a cutback in um, sales uh, in vape shops and gas and convenience stores. What people are going to do as a result of not uh, spending money in vape shops and uh, gas and convenience stores, if it is the case that they respond reasonably strongly to the higher prices, uh, is difficult to say. Uh, we don't we don't know if um, some will go to, or we don't know how many will go, how many buyers will go to the illegal market. We don't know if people will go back to cigarettes. Um, if you're um, concerned about public health, then you, you would hope that that would not happen. But we're, we're in fairly new territory here, and we're not really quite sure how um, people will respond by in, in, in possibly going into other markets or looking for other sources for their, their nicotine. Well, and that uh, begs the question on how many vapors do you think or do we know uh, who might go back to smoking? Well, again, there are some estimates in the statistical and econometric literature. And uh, most of the estimates, not every one of them, but most of the estimates indicate, uh, and a lot of the data is for the United States, most of the estimates indicate that cigarettes and uh, e-liquid, cigarettes and vaping are substitute goods uh, rather than complementary goods. Complementary goods are goods that go together Substitute goods are goods that people substitute one for the other when the price of one of them goes up. So the statistical literature, by and large, um, uh, comes up with the finding that these are substitute goods. So um, again, we can't be uh, certain to what degree people will go back to cigarettes. But I think it's also possible that if you make these products, these new low-risk products, too expensive, there is less of an incentive for people who are smoking to move to the lower risk product. So it's not just the case that people might say, oh, I'm going to go back to cigarettes. I think, you know, relatively few people might do that if they are committed vapors because they will have come to realize that vaping is not nearly as bad for their health as smoking is. But it may be the case that people who are, it's more likely the case that people who are smoking 
will be less inclined to move over to the lower risk product because they haven't uh, experienced the the better health that is associated with uh, the lower risk products and cigarettes. So um, in that way, uh, cigarettes and vaping are substitutes because you would get more switchover if the price were lower. Now, from an economics point of view, and also, you know, marketing and so forth, there's a signal that's being sent to smokers. Let's just, you know, focus on current smokers right now. There's a signal being sent to the smoker from the government through this tax, whether they like it or not. What do you think that signal is? Well, it's not a terribly, it's not a terribly, uh, it's not a terribly positive signal. Um, I, I, I would, if, uh, and I'm not, I'm not speaking for anybody other than myself here when I, when I say what I'm going to say now, I think that if you were to take the proposal of the uh, Royal College of Physicians in England and, um, and say, well, let's just put a retail tax of an extra X percent onto the good, then um, much as British, British Columbia did to, uh, a couple of years ago in one of their budgets, they just put a, a 20% tax on vaping in place of their provincial tax. So what, what I would like to see myself personally as a researcher, not as a, a spokesperson for the uh, vaping associations, I, I think we might be able to just get away with, um, instead of having a, a 15% a 15 uh, uh, combined federal and provincial sales tax, just have a, a 20% tax on. I mean, we, we, we really have to think here, why is it that we want to impose a heavy tax on, on vaping? Vaping is different from alcohol. If you alcohol has external effects in society, uh, young people drink uh, cheap alcohol, or people of any age can drink cheap alcohol and get involved in accidents and there can be a loss of life. Uh, a lot of people die from cir cirrhosis of the liver or other complications resulting from excessive use of alcohol. But in the case of vaping, the the external effects that users have on other people are much, much smaller than they are for, for alcohol. And so we shouldn't be guided um, by the taxes that we put on alcohol. We should see vaping as a less risky product than, than alcohol and, and tax uh, correspondingly. Now, you mentioned uh, British Columbia, the province of British Columbia's 20% uh, tax. Let me ask you this, and we haven't yet talked about it here, but the big fear of everyone involved is that the provinces that, uh, who wish to jump in and join the federal government on this excise tax, explain what that is all about and, and the possibilities of that happening. Well, um, I think this is an enormous, this constitutes an enormous fear in the uh, the vaping industry and i think with with justification because uh if it is the case that the provinces get very zealous in uh attacking vaping and they decide that because um nicotine of tobacco based products form a joint jurisdiction for both province the provinces and the federal government and they decide to get in on the act and say well if the federal government put this tax on, uh, we can do the same thing and we can share in the spoils. So for example, if you look at taxes on cigarettes uh, at the present time, the federal tax is about 15 cents per stick. But many provinces have um, a provincial uh, excise levy of about 30 cents per stick. 
So it's quite likely that the provinces could say, look, in the field of cigarettes, we get uh, an excise revenue that is twice as large as the federal excise levy. Uh, surely we're entitled to the same thing in the field of vaping. Now, if that happened, then uh, there would be potentially colossal effects in the, in the industry, much bigger than the one, obviously, than the ones that, that I have tried to document in the modeling exercise that I, I engaged in on behalf of the Canadian Vaping Association. Now, in that uh, model, uh, you did scratch some numbers or more than scratch, you know, it comes out of your modeling. And that if indeed uh, the promises do decide to jump in with the federal government on this excise tax, it could jump to an additional, well, to $396 million in additional revenue to the federal government. Yeah. And, and once again, it depends upon how uh, consumers uh, respond. If, if, if consumers cut back a lot in response to the higher tax, then not so much revenue will be generated if they don't cut back a lot then a lot more revenue will be generated. And, and so if, if, if consumers don't were, were not to cut back a lot, well, that would be better for the industry. But at the same time, it would uh, generate uh, tax revenues maybe three times greater than the amount envisaged in, in the budget. And also lead to a major loss in sales for the vendors. Oh, yes. Yeah. D again, depending upon how responsive consumers are, if they're highly responsive, then the losses to vendors will be uh, considerable. If they're less responsive, then we would still have substantial losses, um, but not as much if the consumers were somewhat less responsive and cutting back to uh, the imposition of the tax. Don't we have the potential here of destroying this entire industry in Canada? I mean, or is that, or am I being... Am I being overly excited here? No, I think there is the um, there is the precedent of what what happened in uh, Nova Scotia a couple of years ago when the Nova Scotian government um, came out with guns blazing against the industry and a huge percentage of the vape shops closed down in Nova Scotia. Now that that was a one off situation because even though there are regulations on uh, across provincial border. Uh, shopping in, in these products. It's still the case that um, individuals, when they go from Nova Scotia to, to New Brunswick, or when they've got friends coming in, or they can order online if the online um, vendor is not too concerned about shipping out of province. And um, they, can, they can avoid the, the local taxes to some degree. And so really what you do in that situation, where you've got one province putting on punitive taxes and other provinces not, all you're really doing is exporting jobs from your own province to other provinces. You, you close down vape shops in your own province, and then other provinces hire, hire some more people to do the shipping for them or to do the, the, the retailing for them. But if you have a case where across the, across the board, all of the provinces get, get in on the act, then it becomes more and more difficult for residents of particular provinces to to evade these higher across the board taxes. And um, that's where you would certainly see a move to the illegal market. You would see people um, bringing stuff back with, from the United States with them and the industry would, would um, degenerate very quickly. Um, Italy is another case in point. I was reading the other day, the Italian government a few years ago, ago decided to uh, impose very heavy taxes on, on vaping 
there were a huge number, a huge number of the vape shops, more than half of them closed down. And then ex post, they, they realized how crazy their taxes were. And they uh, more recently have reduced their taxes again. So it would be really nice if we didn't have to go through that learning process in Canada when there's already experience out there. Ian, let me just say that, you know, clearly, you know, if you're if you're seeing three, four, five, six hundred million dollars in reduction of sales in the vaping industry and and then a couple hundred million dollars or so actually going out to government. I mean, there's there really is nothing left there to support the industry. It's it, it, so do you see that there could be consolidation of uh, businesses in the industry, jobs lost and so forth? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the, the industry right now, we reckon it accounts for uh, somewhere between one and a half and two billion dollars worth of sales annually. Uh, I don't know um, how many people are employed in the industry, but a very large part of the industry is domestic. Pretty well all of the production of e-liquid is, is done domestically. Um, a lot of the uh, finished uh, devices are imported. So the jewel fused devices are made overseas and uh, most of the disposables are made overseas uh, also. But there's a very sizable domestic component in this industry. So if, if there are big cutbacks as a result of you know, a high federal rate and then a high provincial rate, then there is going to be an impact on the domestic economy. It's not just the fact that we will be importing fewer goods from from China or wherever wherever it is we're um, importing our disposables. Ian, we just had Dr. Kenneth Warner on the show, eminent tobacco controller out of the University of Michigan. And also too with him was Cliff Douglas, also from the University of Michigan and former vice president of tobacco control at the American Cancer Society. They were on the show talking about a range of these issues and specifically on tax, levying high taxes is really tobacco control 101. It's the first step that you take to really try to take out big tobacco and, and to make you know smoking unappealing for the consumer. And then when I look at what's happening here, I, I can't help but not think that the government of Canada knows this, you know, iron hard rule of economics and tobacco control, and that's tax something extremely high and people will stop using the product. I think there are a couple of things to say there. Um, the people uh, the people you mentioned are extraordinarily well-known people, and I think it's really important to recognize that a huge number of the people who are speaking out on behalf of reduced risk products are people who have spent a large part of their lives advocating against cigarettes and advocating against combustible tobacco products. Uh, the people who are speaking out on behalf of um, harm reduction are, are not mouthpieces for the industry. In many cases, they are eminent scholars who have published hundreds of papers over their lives and have been extraordinarily worried about the impact of combustible tobacco on the health of the population. Not so long ago, a group of, I think, 13 past presidents of the Society for Research in, in Nicotine uh, published an open letter and they advocated, these are presidents of the society, and they advocated that society and government have a more open attitude to 
the use of reduced harm products in enabling people to transition from a high risk to a much lower risk product. So all to say is that, you know, there are, are a lot of very wise people out there who are advocating for low risk products. They recognize that, you know, we're, we're all human. We're all prone to want to consume certain items that may not be great for us, but nonetheless, may not do us a great deal of harm at the, at the end of the day. And we just have to be willing to tolerate that in an open society. Some people like to buy lottery tickets. Some people like to have a glass of wine with uh, their supper. Some people um, like to uh, consume cannabis in the evening after their day's work. Uh, some people like to uh, vape on nicotine. So we should think about uh, nicotine in that context, rather than thinking about it as a big evil in the same way as we uh, might think about um, combustible tobacco. So uh, Ken Warner and his colleague that you had on um, are, are, are very eminent people and they really should be, should be listened to. To answer the second part of your question, uh, don't we know this in government? Um, I would have to say, yes, a lot of people in, in Health Canada know that what the advocates of harm reduction are saying and they understand it but it seems to me that there is a very strong set of traditional embedded forces that is unable to distinguish between the impacts of combustible products and non-combustible products um, what are these people going to do if they adhere to the belief system which says, um, hey, these are low harm products, let people consume them. They won't be able to spend their days um, guiding us through our lives and guiding new uh, and formulating new principles for us to, to live by. And so there's um, an entrenched culture that is that grew up and is based upon uh, a distrust, reasonably so, of, of tobacco companies and fear of the health consequences of consuming combustible tobacco and i think it, it it seems to me that it's very difficult for a lot of people in ottawa to break out of that historic culture and to try to see harm reduction for what it is it took us a very long time as a society to um, to buy into needle exchanges but by and large most of us have bought into that idea needle exchanges are harm reduction processes and i think we have to try to think of um, vaping products as reduced harm products rather than being um, a product which um, rather than being products which are, are, are going to cause and cause us endless ill health they are not in the same category as cigarettes at all and uh, i don't know how long more it's going to take to um for for ottawa to get out of its traditional mindset um, that is still thinking about battles with tobacco companies.